Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Welcome to the 2020 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you very much for joining us. My name is Sheena MacDonald. I'm a journalist and today it is my privilege and absolute pleasure to introduce to you the author of this book, The Five, The Untold Lives of the Five Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, Hallie Rubenhold. Thank you very much for coming, Hallie. Oh, it's a pleasure joining you from uh, my study in London. This book is an absolute TARDIS. I mean, it transports you to uh, late 19th century, the complexities of late 19th century London uh, in all its, well, there are, there are good things and bad things and many, many bad things. And it clearly draws on a mighty and uh, various body of research. So it's no surprise to me that it won last year's Bailey Gifford Award for nonfiction, which is a, a, actually a very, very competitive field, um, uh, given the, the, the work and talent of the eligible authors. Uh, so, and Bailey Gifford are the sponsors of this event as well. Bailey Gifford are the, the independent investment manager based here in Edinburgh and active around the world. So many congratulations and, uh, and welcome to this festival. Now, along with the award, I should say this now, came a commission from the book festival to write an essay inspired by the matter of the book. It's what the director, Nick Barley, calls a chapter Z. And so you have written The Problem with Great Men. Would you like to waggle? There we are. <laughs> in booklet form, which you're going to give us a very substantive flavour of today, but it makes sense uh, to talk first about the five. The five. Why? Why have you focused on these five women? Where did this book come from? Well, simply because um, the story of Jack the Ripper has never really included their stories. And um, Jack the Ripper is, you know, it's a household name. Um, he is, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, he is one of our most prominent uh, international exports, uh, cultural exports. You know, we, <laughs> the world knows about us because of a serial killer. But, um, you know, and there are people who come here every year to go on Jack the Ripper tours. Um, and everybody's interested in, in the story of the murders and potentially figuring out who he was. But the story of the people who he killed was completely absent from this narrative. And it really surprised me when I started doing research that there had been no full length book ever written in 132 years, when I, when I started, it was about 128, 29 years. Um, and I thought, my God, there is a whole world here that needs to be explored. Which effectively means that uh, the tours of, of, uh, of Ripperland and Whitechapel in London don't tell the full story. This is not a book at all about, uh, about the murderer. It's a book about the lives of uh, the women he killed in, between August and November 1888. They've been somewhat thoughtlessly grouped together as victims, but they were, of course, all individuals. And in piecing together uh, what you can of their life stories, you find out that they did have quite a lot in common in terms of the realities of living and working in London uh, in the late 19th century. Uh, and we do learn quite a lot about these girls because they were, they were girls when we, when we meet them. Uh, but even more about the places and the culture that they grew up in. 
Um, let's start with Polly Nichols. What can you tell us about Polly Nichols? She was born in 1845 to a, a tradesman. And what happened? Well, uh, Polly was, was born to a, a blacksmith in London. Um, and um, her father had a trade. And so technically, um, you know, this was a man who... who could earn uh, a relatively decent income. I say that, you know, relatively because um, it was very hard for people to make a living um, and housing cost an enormous amount. You've got very little uh, for what you paid and, and food was expensive um, and people often have very large families. And uh, and was the, ca this, the, the case with, with Polly's uh, family was that... Um, in some ways, she was quite fortunate in that she didn't come from a very large family, unlike someone like Kate Eddowes. Um, and she had two owners in her family. She had her father and her brother, so two male wage earners, which allowed her to stay in school for a bit longer. So we know she was literate. And also she grew up around uh, Fleet Street and within the printing trade. Uh, which gave her a little bit more of an advantage where literacy was concerned. She also then married a printer. And we also know that um, she became, she and her husband and their children became some of the first residents to be accepted into um, some of London's first social housing at the Peabody buildings, um, which were started by an American philanthropist, George Peabody, and uh, they lived in one of these blocks of flats uh, near Waterloo um, in Lambeth. And um, actually, you know, I mean, they had all of the advantages of, um, of, of being chosen for this social housing initiative. Um, you know, they had um, running water, they had um, a toilet they, which they shared with the next door flat, which was amazing. Uh, the children had their own, the children were divided by sex and had their own bedrooms as opposed to, you know, living in a situation where most of the poor found themselves, which was, you know, numerous family members crammed into rooms often no more than eight by 10 feet. Um, uh, they had a, a stove, it was Heated. But and you know, but in spite of all of this, things can still go wrong, and this is what happened with Polly. So you know, uh, life interferes, and um, her husband started having an affair with the next door neighbor, and their marriage fell apart. And unfortunately, because there were so few options for women in terms of work in terms of being able to sustain themselves in the 19th century, Polly had to end up in the workhouse. She had to prove that she was in need of financial support from her husband, which she would have been because she couldn't get work that would have sustained her adequately. And he was expected by law to pay for her. So she ended up in the workhouse. She bounced in and out of the workhouse. She found herself homeless, living on the streets. She was in Trafalgar Square in 1887 during the Trafalgar Square riots. Um, she worked for a short time for a family who took her in and tried to rehabilitate her um, in Wandsworth in, the south, in south London. Um, and she left uh, after several months there. Um, we don't know why she left. At the time, she had a, a 
perhaps a problem uh, with alcohol. We don't know how bad that was. We know that she did drink. Um, and eventually she finds herself back. Yeah, she finds herself actually for the first time in her life in uh, Whitechapel, which is where she died. And she was only there for a couple of weeks before she died. And one of the things that many people get wrong about the Ripper story is that all of these women were a born into poverty and be born into poverty in Whitechapel. And that's simply not true. Mm. Um, they ended their lives in Whitechapel, but none of them actually came from Whitechapel. You mentioned uh, uh, Kate Meadows. We should we should name all the women here. There was uh, Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Gutaf's daughter, uh, Kate Meadows, and Mary Jane Kelly. We won't have time to go through uh, all their lives in detail. One detail you didn't mention there was that with her husband, before he took up with somebody else and, and before she left, she had a, a considerable number of children. Yes, she did. Yes, she had uh, She had five children. I mean, she lost her first child um, and then she had another one. And, you know, this was part of a woman's lot in life was a woman bore children. A woman was a mother. A woman was defined by um, that role in her life, uh, that she was a mother, she was a carer, she was a wife, and that was her principal role in society. Um, if she wasn't doing that, it was believe she was really almost extraneous to to society's needs. I find it a fascinating book. I mean, what I learned from it was, and it seems to me that what you're, you told, you tell us is that the, the majority of working class women grew up knowing they would have to multitask. They had to raise uh, almost always a, a, an ever larger family. They had to try to scrape something for a living in order to bolster whatever uh, the man of the house, be they married or not, brought in if he did, uh, or continue to do so if he left, and all within uh, a lifelong culture of disrespect. Is that a fair praise? Yes, I think so. I, I, society had, had basically structured itself um, around the concept of, you know, a man was the breadwinner. Yeah. And a woman's, woman's role was in the house. It was a, a secondary role and uh and and so she was solely reliant upon a man for her her support so for example if a woman found herself in a situation uh whereby her husband left her or died and she had several children um there wasn't she wasn't able to go out and get the sort of work that would support her she would probably find herself in the workhouse or if not on the mercy of, of better off family members if there were any and quite often there weren't um and and so the the entire way in which society was built was to elevate the man and his needs mm. and to put the woman second to that and that you know you can't really have a functioning society if you are constantly telling half of the population that they cannot contribute in a meaningful way or only contribute within the home. You've touched on three threads that run through this. Poor housing, although I know Stamford Street, I used to live up until very recently, just around the corner from Stamford Street, the Peabody building, but on the whole, poor housing, uh, the lack of contraception, 
and alcohol. What these five women have in common was an inability to um, to deal with the vicissitudes of of their lives. Was was that just those five, or was that? And, and they were very unlucky to to, to encounter the, this person who is. Uh, called Jack the Ripper, whoever he was. But, th but that, that, that must have been not an uncommon situation to find yourself in. Oh, ab absolutely not. I mean, the, I, I think these five women are kind of an every woman mm. or um, poor Victorian women who have been written out of history. I mean, really, you know, the majority of poor people have been written out of history. And if you think of the majority of people were poor in the past, that's... That's a you know vast swathes of history that have just been uh, that have just vanished. Um, so 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 yes, you know it it was it was a, a very very difficult situation to to find oneself in. Journalists said, "I'm a journalist. Journalists don't come out very well from this book." Contemporary journalists in 1888 thought that sex sold copy plus a change. Uh, so the popular narrative, and it is huge surrounding the murders of these women, was that they were all prostitutes. And that idea has lasted to this day. And you demonstrate that, uh, well, first of all, there were no signs of sexual intercourse found on the, on the bodies. Uh, and, and only one of them had, 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 had practiced in that mode, uh, as far as you know, to, to any extent. Um, and that prejudice has lasted uh, to this day. And you have been criticized, I know, by trolls on the internet uh, who insist that the Ripper's victims were no better than they should be or deserved what happened. Did you foresee that when you wrote this book? Um, well, I knew, I knew because it would overturn the orthodoxy that I was likely to encounter some problems, but I was completely taken aback by the amount of ire that mm. there was that, um, but you know, it becomes about much more than um, this statement that they were prostitutes. It becomes about really a, a sort of, it, it becomes about a number of men and their egos. I, I was trying to think of a better way and a, a nicer way to put it. And um, I think it does actually come down to that. It's, it is, uh, ripperology, and I, <laughs> I was going to try to steer away from this subject, is something which has been largely dominated by men. It is a, a pseudoscience, it's a pseudo-discipline, um, it's full of conspiracy theories. Um, none of the ripperologists uh, within this very, very broad community of ripperologists can really agree on anything, but the one thing that they do agree on is that, the, that Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes. Mm. That's the only thing. And, 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 you know, here I am, a woman who's from outside of their community coming in and saying, well, actually, I've proven that this is wrong. But not only that, it's the documentation on which these assumptions and assertions are based. Um, I question. And, and then, you, then you end up questioning the viability of all the documentation on which the discipline of ripperology is based. And you realize you don't really have much to go on and all of these theories then start to come unraveled um and so um you know it's it's too much to take in it's too much nobody wants to believe that so i have to be proven wrong by them and you know i i just couldn't believe the outrage um surrounding this it, it's 
and also there's just the inability to try to understand that history is not something static. History is something that we are constantly investigating and reinvestigating. You know, there are lots of different ways to look at accounts and documentation. Context is everything. And if you're not willing to accept that, then you're never actually going to broaden your understanding of the past at all. This is a perfect point then to hear uh, this year's new essay, The Problem with Great Men. Uh, you can download it on PDF um, via the link to this session. Uh, and as I said earlier, if you, if you buy the book, on the online bookshop, you will get a, a beautifully produced booklet of it. But let's hear it, Hallie. Can you, can you give us the essay, The Problem with Great Men? And, uh, and why that title? Well, um, first of all, I think uh, I think I think the reason for the title will become will become obvious. Um, yes. I am I am um, first of all, this is these are just extracts from from the essay. So they've yeah. uh, taken their paragraphs that have been taken um, from the larger body and uh, not the entire essay itself, of which I explore um, many more of these, uh, many of these points in much more detail. Um, but uh, great men refers to Thomas Carlyle's great man theory of history, uh, which I will address in the essay. Sometime before three o'clock on Tuesday, on the 5th of May, 1840, the doors to the lecture room at 17 Edward Street near Leafy Portman Square were unlocked to members of the public. For several weeks, an advert had run in the London newspapers drawing readers' attention to a series of six lectures which were to be given during the month of May by the celebrated essayist Thomas Carlyle. On this occasion, Carlyle's objective was to define history and to explore the lives and personal qualities of those responsible for making it. From the outset, he proposed a simple truth that, quote, the history of the world is but the biography of great men. On that day and on five subsequent afternoons, Carlyle took his audiences on a guided tour of the lives of several real and mythical figures, the divinity Odin, the prophet Mohammed, the poet William Shakespeare and Dante Alighieri, the priest Martin Luther and John Knox, the man of letters Samuel Johnson, Robert Burns and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and the king Oliver Cromwell and Napoleon Bonaparte. He explained that each of these personalities possessed natural characteristics and abilities such as divine inspiration, superior intellect, sincerity, courage and vision which encouraged men to listen to their ideas and to follow them. Carlyle insisted that it was necessary for men of his own age to recognize the genius of the hero. The great man was an inspiration to mankind. He was, as Carlyle put it, as lightning out of heaven. The rest of men awaited for him like fuel and then they too would aflame. This was not history for the masses or even knowledge to be consumed by them. Carlyle's theories of greatness applied, applied only to white privileged men. The ordinary working man or woman would not have been in a position to abandon their employ employment for six afternoons in the month of May or to afford the one guinea or one pound and one shilling subscription to the program of talks. In the 1840s, laborers might earn a pound a week and skilled artisans no more than two pounds a week. Tradesmen 
were remunerated in pounds and shillings, not in guineas. The following year, Carlyle and his publisher decided to make his ideas more widely accessible. The author transformed his notes into an extended essay which appeared in print at the price of 10 shillings and sixpence. At such a cost, it was far beyond the means of the majority of the population in more than just financial terms. At the time, roughly only 60% of men and 40% of women were literate. Schooling had not yet been made compulsory and public libraries would not appear for another nine years. Bettering oneself was an exceptionally difficult challenge if you worked six days a week for 10 to 12 hours a day in a factory, lived in two rooms of eight feet by 10 feet, which you shared with numerous other family members and had no access to clean water. The great man theory was born into a world of profound social injustice and inequality. The soil from which the great man theory sprung was the same ground onto which the expendable lives of the five, their parents, siblings and children were trodden. Somehow in the current age of fast fashion and super fast broadband, of digital downloads and live updates, history is seen as something static. It happened and is gone. History lies beyond us. Most of us are uncertain from where or when we picked up certain fixed beliefs. They just became lodged in us. Like the understanding that the home is a woman's responsibility, that men shouldn't display their emotions, and that accent reflects intelligent, intelligence. So the concept of history as the story of important events and the great deeds of great men has also been absorbed. Great man presents a selective picture of our nation's history, a history constructed as a series of grand tableaux without room for nuance. It is a single linear narrative of our past, which is with few exceptions, largely privileged male and white. We have never attempted to have a public conversation about the meaning or purpose of history in our society. It can hardly be surprising that so much of the nation was startled by the sound of Edward Colston's statue being thrown into Bristol Harbour. In the 21st century, we have disconnected from our history. We have failed to ask basic questions as to its authorship and who owns the narrative and whether that story is reflective of all of us or simply a continuation of an outdated Victorian ideal. Change is not especially easy when both mainstream publishing and factual television, those who produce the bulk of history content for public consumption, still rely on the paradigm of great man to define the subject. History has acquired a branding problem. And because we've never been taught to think of it, uh, and because we've been taught to think of it as boring and irrelevant, the commercial world has never been entirely confident that people will want to buy it. It requires recognizable names and national events to make it sell. Worse still, not only does commercial history reinforce the elitist concepts of great man, but it also promotes a set of assumptions about gender which would not have been out of place among Carlyle's audience in 1840. Through marketing and fo focus group studies, it has been decided that great man history, which is about war and politics, is predominantly of male interest. Factual history programming, which is notorious for allocating serious history to male historians and dress up history to female historians is equally culpable. It should also come as no surprise that so few historians of color 
appear as the representatives of British history on screen. The problem with perpetually giving people what they know is not only that what we never challenge the biases and obsolete concepts, but that we never expand our knowledge. There is security and comfort in the familiar, and we have allowed popular history to become just this, an anthology of bedtime stories. But history, which should be regarded as an account of our human experience, is not a place of safety. History is about questing for answers and interrogating what is held to be truth. The history we see on television and on the pages into which we escape should invite us to explore somewhere foreign, yet with uncomfortably familiar resonances. Popular history should never permit us to get too comfortable with what we think we already know. It should eschew complacency and take us through the back door into a subject rather than, predicting, rather than predictably entering through the great hall. We have not come to know we have not come to know families of merchants or shoemakers, their troubled marriages or their, or their failed aspirations. What was it like, for example, to be a musician, a thatcher, or the daughter of a tanner? An entire nation of subjects have gone without names, lost behind a pile of books about their kings and queens. Similarly, we have allowed single personalities to lay claim to the entirety of the capital, we write about the London of Shakespeare, Samuel Pepys, and Charles Dickens, summing up the diverse experience of millions through the eyes of three wealthy men. The history of every location is a compendium of unique life stories. I awakened to this while writing my first book of nonfiction, The Come Gone Ladies, about a notorious 18th century guide to the capital sex workers. In the course of researching this book, my perception of London, the city in which I live, shifted forever. I began to see ghosts. It was no longer possible to pass by rows of houses in Fitzrovia or Mayfair without recalling the short biographies I had read in the Harris's list of those who had once inhabited these addresses. The London of my mind teems with spectres who walk alongside me. Now I live perpetually among the dead. I not only see Polly Nichols in Trafalgar Square, but Mary Jane Kelly circling Piccadilly in a carriage. I have peered into the windows of Annie Chapman's mother's house on Montpellier Place and seen her wedding photo on the mantel. I have watched Elizabeth Stride mount the stairs at 67 Gower Street, and I have followed a young Catherine Eddowes across, the, across London Bridge on her way to the Dowgate School. When I alight at my underground station, I can see my slumbering neighbors who sought shelter there during the Blitz. I know the names of the people who slept in my house in 1911. These were the individuals who shared my physical space before I arrived here, whose feet touched paving stones beneath mine. And yet, great man history has conditioned us to believe that these lives are unworthy. There is an antidote to great man history, one which lies on the opposite end of the spectrum from it. When a tutor recommended that I read Lawrence Stone's The Family, Sex and Marriage in England, 1500 to 1800, my perspective on history and what it could be was suddenly blown open. The historian Mary Fulbrook describes social history as, quote, history with the people put back in. As it has been the primary tool through which women's voices and experiences have been recovered, it is hardly surprising that some critics have been hesitant to regard it as, quote, serious history. 
What social history offers us is not a wide angle lens on the past, but a microscope. It allows us to define the small more clearly, the small more clearly by examining the person rather than the event. More importantly, it encourages, it encourages us to consider how much of their values and their world we have inherited. Social history turns the traditional historical narrative on its head so we can view events from the bottom up rather than from the top down. It puts the human experience front and center. And for this reason, it is one of the most accessible entry points to understanding the past. Human beings are by nature self-interested creatures. My experience of teaching undergraduates and speaking about history to audiences across the globe has made me acutely aware of this. This is the sort of history that grabs us by the lapels and yanks us forcibly into the past. Yet recovering this type of rarefied information and piecing together the pictures it presents of life is not light work. Unfortunately, the wide scale digitization of primary and secondary source material from libraries and archives throughout the world has entirely altered the landscape of possibilities for historical research. Millions of old newspapers, periodicals, and rare books have made their way into databases. Censuses, workhouse records, ships manifests, immigration records, birth, deaths, and marriage registers, military records, slave registers, wills, and probate information are available to historians as well as members of the general public. Technology and advanced search mechanisms have revolutionized our ability to access data about the past and to drill for information about the disenfranchised in particular. Despite these digital strides forward, skeptics are still likely to question whether it is possible for those deprived of a voice to tell a story. My intention in writing The Five was to prove that it is. The five victims of Jack the Ripper, a group of women who were born into hardship and sparsely educated fall into this category. My challenge was to construct a picture of their lives. Much to my delight, I found that Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly scattered their imprints throughout an extraordinary range of documents. They appeared regularly in the censuses, betraying their addresses, their occupations, their ages, and the range of details about their families and neighborhoods. I was able to follow them in and out of the workhouses and to learn about their states of health, their children, where they slept on previous nights, and if they had been in trouble with the law. Newspaper interviews with relations, friends, and employers yielded information about these women's pasts, which I would later cross-reference with more reliable records. Then there were the few truly remarkable discoveries. A logbook documenting Annie Chapman's time at Speltborn Sanatorium, recovered from a closet in a Protestant convent, and an account of how Polly Nichols came to find herself at Lambeth Workhouse. Context was the active ingredient in the restoration of their stories. When placed within a framework of their era, the subjects of my research came to life in what seemed to be the most alchemical of ways. The individual fragments sealed together and took on the form of five distinct human outlines. The reason why Catherine Eddowes' story and the histories of so many like her have lain buried and forgotten is because we have agreed that they are nothing and nobody. Great man theory has told us so. Great man theory, great man theory would have us believe 
that unless we have been born noble or descended from genius, then we and generations of our ancestors have contributed nothing worth remembering. Its principal fault is that it promotes the notion that there are the worthy and then there is everyone else. Ultimately, it fails to recognize the inherent dignity of the human condition. It is time to replace it with something better. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. You were clearly a revolutionary and a, and a pioneer. I hope that essay is widely read and acted upon, including by uh, television commissioners. <laughs> do, you think, do you think it will find uh, a popular welcome? I mean, we, are, we, we grow up, we go through school learning about great men. Do you think your social historian's view will, 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 be, well, will be welcomed? Absolutely. I think it's welcomed already. I think it's, it is the one type of history that people actively want. It is the one thing that people connect with most easily. It is most readily available to people. It explains who we are and why we are. It, you know, it, 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 it the most basic questions about our lives. You know, I, it's interesting that during, during the COVID crisis, people are reaching back and they're trying to find out about how did people live through the Spanish flu? People are reading books like Boccaccio's Decameron, which is about you know a group of um, uh, mythical, well, invented, um, uh, I think, 14th century nobles who went and, and told each other stories during the, uh, a plague in Florence. You know, people want to connect with a past with the past in the way that is absolutely immediate and our enormous mistake. And, you know, I cannot underestimate this, is that we have put history there and us here. And so we make, we have made history irrelevant in our lives. History isn't irrelevant. History informs everything about our lives. We just don't recognize it and we don't see it. Yes. Yes. I mean, maybe it's something wrong with the word history. I mean, history sounds rather majestic in capital H, but it is, as you say, it, it, is, it is people's lives. Do you think the education systems, which are going through a bit of turmoil at the moment across the country, uh, how do you think they will react to these ideas? I mean, we, we, we learn, we go from, from primary school upwards, we learn about great men. How is that going to change? And how will it be assessed? Well, well, I mean, I, it's, social history is assessed at universities, so why couldn't it be assessed? At, I mean, it, it's just a matter of including it into the curriculum. And I know that the national curriculum, I know there are many teachers, I spoke to a number of teachers, I've been actually working with a lot of teachers after writing The Five who actually are incorporating The Five into um, into what they're teaching about Victorian, the Victorian world, about crime and punishment. Um, and and teachers find it much easier to grab students through social history because people want to know about why this is relevant. And history, you know, can be viewed as a series of stories. It's human stories. Um, if you make history about something, if you tell history in terms of, well, if you, if you present history in terms of something which happened, you know, in the great halls of government, mm -hmm. in palaces. Um, the natural question people, and especially students, are going to ask is, well, what does this have to do with me? Mm -hmm. This is totally irrelevant. You know, and if you try to tell the story of, well, how is it that we got the laws that we have? How is it that our rights are guaranteed in the way they are? And if you start by saying, well, you know, back this time to the Magna Carta, da-da-da-da-da, 
the, the, the eyes glaze over. I've seen it myself. Oh, I believe um, that. Yeah. You start with the person on the ground. You start with how they experience the world. Um, and that's how you access it. And, and you know, and, and as I said, lots of teachers are already doing this. It just needs to be embraced more widely. And I think we are so wedded to, you know, we've never, again, like with, with Jack Grip and the things, the, the questions we've never asked surrounding that mythology, we have never questioned what the definition of history is. And it is absolutely crucial this time in particular that we do that because people are already asking these questions um you know what is history you know and whose history more importantly and you know if you say that history just belongs to these people who were involved in the quote-unquote banner headline events then you know you are cutting out everyone from participating in this and we just it, we need to just absolutely reassess it you had me grabbed from chapter one of the five. I mean, I simply did not know that in 1887, Trafalgar Square was a bit of an open-air doss house. Exactly. I mean, this is so, so typical. And I will tell you my experience with this as well was that, you know, I'm a historian. I, I, I write about the underworld. I write about the poor. I write about women. I write about people whose stories have been written out. And I didn't even know about the Trafalgar Square riots. Mm. And other historians I've spoken to had never heard of the Trafalgar Square riots. And this gives you, you know, the, the, this is the perfect example of why we need to tell other histories. Can you spell them out a bit? Can you, can you spell out what happened in, in 1887? You say a tale of two cities. It is, and I, I use this at the beginning of the book as a way, uh, as a sort of entry point into exploring not only the stories of the five and the poor, but also presenting how we see two sides of a historical mm. uh, story. You know, there is the accepted version, which has been told and retold and not questioned, often never questioned. And then there is usually a flip side, which nobody knows about in, you know, in the popular sphere. I mean, academics will know about these things. Um, but it, it never enters into popular conversation, and and this these you know these are two sides of the same coin, and it's time we turn the coin over or we integrate these two sides together. So the Trafalgar Square riots um, occurred in in eighteen eighty seven. Um, uh, we were at the time in the midst of an, a, a depression, agricultural depression, uh, a, a very long hot summer like we're experiencing right now meant that a lot of the, the crops were, were ruined. People came into London looking for work, especially in Covent Garden Market, which was the vegetable market, fruit and vegetable market, and there wasn't work there and they had nowhere to stay. And so they started camping out in Trafalgar Square and they used the fountains as a source of water. And then more and more people came to join them there. And so you had, by the end of the summer, this jubilee summer, summer and autumn, um, this growing encampment of people, which also jubilee. Took, on, Victoria, yeah, yes. sorry, also took on other political concerns as well. Um, and, and this erupted into riot. And um, not only did it erupt into riot, but you had lots of, you know, very high profile um, socialist leaders at the time coming there, people like William Morris and Annie Besant. Um, and uh, George Bernard Shaw, people giving uh, speeches in, in Trafalgar Square. Um, and I mean, it's completely erased, it's completely erased from 
a popular understanding of the 19th century. You know, when I read that, uh, and, and, and I, I, I read The Five, I know it, it, uh, it was uh, published last year and, and, and it won uh, the Bailey Gifford Nonfiction Prize, but I didn't read it until, until this year. And I was reading it in the current crisis that we're living through and we're looking forward to arguably to an autumn of tremendous discontent and destitution. And, and I read about the people camping out in Trafalgar Square and I had this image of uh, the future and I thought, my goodness, it could happen again. It could happen again. And it, you know, and it, it's happened before. And that's the thing, I mean, I guess, you know, one of the things I, I've had, you know, we're all thinking about things because of the COVID crisis and we're looking at the world and the world is changing around us yeah. at a phenomenal rate. And as a historian who looks at periods of change and how people respond to periods of change, this COVID crisis has been really fascinating for me and mm -hmm. kind of stepping outside of myself and looking at what my experiences are, but also comparing it to other historical times. And, you know, perhaps one note of positivity in the future is what for the future is that my perspective in being a historian allows me to understand and recognize that, you know, a lot of people are worried all the good things that we enjoy about our life are going away and they're never going to come back. Well, the good things, the truly good things, the things that people enjoy being together, um, going out, going to the theater, um, being entertained, being in groups, that always comes back. It always comes, we lose things and then things come back. The things that are important to us as a society, as a culture, as human beings, will always find a way back. And that is what history tells us. So perhaps that is a, a, a note of hope for people out there who are feeling a little bit despondent about everything. There's a couple of things I want to touch on. Uh, you mentioned, uh, going back to great men, uh, you mentioned Edward Colston, who, of course, the statue of whom we saw uh, uh, summarily dispatched into into Bristol Harbour. Where do you stand on statue toppling? Well, I think it's absolutely time to really start reassessing why those statues are there. And I will point out that statues are not history. Statues were put up at a particular time to represent a particular mindset. That it's it it's like. A, a representation of where that culture was at that particular time and its values and what it recognized. And, uh, and you know, it, we don't learn history from the statues in our squares. We learn history from books and we learn history from public discussion as well, which is why it's time we have discussions about these statues and what purpose they serve. And, and more importantly, we need a public discussion about what history is and who does it belong to? Because, um, you know, as, I, as I've said, it, it's for so long we've defined it as, you know, the great deeds of great men. And it really isn't anymore. It really isn't, and I don't think it ever was. That was one Victorian definition of what it is. And there's no reason why we should be carrying the uh, the ideals of Victorian England into the 21st century with us. Well, the counter-argument to statue toppling is that it's uh, impossible to erase or eradicate history. I mean, would it be better if, uh, if Auschwitz had been raised to the ground and it were impossible to see uh, what happened a mere, a mere 70 years ago? We're not 
razing to the ground these things. And it's, I, I don't think it's an act of, of, of getting rid of things. Uh, I, all, I mean, I don't think it's a, a, an act of, you know, eradicating these things from our past at all. Um, I think that each statue should actually, it should, it should not just be up to individuals to decide what comes down, but there should be a discussion, an active discussion about how either something could be contextualized or if it should be removed or what it should be replaced with or how we tell these stories publicly. And there is a whole branch of history uh, now um, called public history, which looks at this type of stuff. I am a public historian and, and, and public history is about these discussions and it is about engaging the public and it is about saying that history is happening in front of us and it is relevant and we need to think about how we represent these things and it does have a, a political edge to it as well so um so yes there are lots of different things we can do to address these issues you use the word digitization would you like to say something about how you've managed to portray uh, Polly and, and and Catherine and 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 the other five with the authenticity which you have managed to do so well, I think, you know, um, as I, I have found information about them, there's a lot out there, births, marriage, deaths, census records, but also contextualizing them within the, uh, within that era, looking at other women's experiences of the time. So their voices become the voices of, of every woman. So um, it, it, where there are gaps, we look at the experiences of others. And that's how we tell the stories of people who haven't been able to speak to us. Uh, I think this is probably gonna to have to be my final question, otherwise we'll be swept away. But um, you talked about uh, history is static, which it clearly isn't because uh, it's, it's a fluid moving thing in, 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 in your uh, practice of it. Historians are also taken seriously. I mean, we recently saw a, David Starkey uh, being disgraced following his comments on the slave trade and, and, and Neil or Oliver uh, resigning from his National Trust job uh, for supporting him. So there is a lot of popular interest in historians, be they great or not. Well, I think there is a lot of interest in anybody who is popular. And I think that feeds into that. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to comment on, on other historians other than to say that, you know, people the particular people you've mentioned have laid out their stands before, laid out their stalls before and make it, have made it very clear what their ide ideas are and where they stand on certain things. Um, and, and I think with social media, um, everybody's open to attack, you know, no one's safe anymore. Um, and that's an unfortunate, unfortunate thing about, um, about today and how we communicate. Indeed. And who do you hope will, 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 will read or listen to uh, The Problem With Great Men and, and act on it? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I, I hope it is um, accessible to all sorts of people from history teachers um, to um, public historians and, and also um, even to politicians, um, people who will want to debate this openly and will want to open up this conversation um, where we really actively discuss what is history and um, look into doing away with uh, clearing away the cobwebs from um, how we understand the subject and, um, and bringing in some new ideas.
Excellent. Uh, well, I, I think it will because you can download uh, a free electronic PDF copy of the essay via the link on the download page on the Edinburgh International Book Festival website. Uh, even better, when you buy a copy from the festival's online bookshop of The Five, uh, you will be sent a booklet, a uh, beautifully produced, thanks to Bailey Gifford, uh, booklet of the essay which uh, Hallie has given us a, a flavour of. Which you can read in full. Well, yes, and you can read the whole thing, which I do recommend that you do, because everything that I've read that she's written uh, this summer has been absolutely page-turning. I'm very sorry we have to end, but we do, uh, because, as I say, otherwise we'll be swept away. But thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Hallie, for coming to and for writing the book. That's an absolute pleasure. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.